Well, with my uh, recent involvement in jail ministry, um, I've been given this book. Uh, it's called Outrageous Justice. It's written by the folks at Prison Fellowship. That's the prison ministry that uh, Charles Colson uh, began. Uh, he, I'm not sure if you know his story, but he was um, convicted in the, in the Nixon administration, spent some time in jail, in prison, actually, for his Watergate scandal, uh, is what, what he was. And, and he just saw ministry, prison ministry, kind of for the first hand, and had developed this ministry called Prison Fellowship. Um, and so I've been given this book. I'd bring a copy, but I'd show a copy, but I only have it electronically. So this is like all the best I have. But I'm reading it, and I've been reading it to try to better understand those I've ministered to the Winnebago County Jail, right, which they're facing their, their legal battles. And this book really wrestles with the justice system in the United States. While admitting that America has one of the best criminal systems in the world, uh, the authors also say justice in our country often misses the mark. Uh, their authors are thankful for the rights given to us by the Constitution of the United States and the amendments, uh, especially the judicial system, as much of it is found upon biblical principles of individual liberty and rights of people. Yet, really, because of the war on drugs, which began in the 1970s and 80s, and the political benefits of being known as being tough on crime, our country has greatly increased the number of laws that can land someone in person. The result is that you, the United States today incarcerates more people than any country in the world. Uh, the prison population in America has grown exponentially in the last four decades. If you've tracked the prison population from the 1970s until today, um, more than sixfold we have increased. We have 660% of the people today in jail than we had back then. That's a lot. All this despite the fact that violent crime has dropped 45% in recent years. And so our prison population is a problem for this country. And the problem has a lot to do with justice. We live in a fallen world, and justice in our country right, often misses the mark. Here's, here's what the writers say. They said the slogan, quote, punishment that fits the crime sounds simple, but we must wrestle through determining what this means, and our judgments are colored by our understanding of the purpose of punishment. And it's super complex. I mean, this, this book has really caused me to think about justice, think about punishment, think about retribution, and, and what, what people deserve. It's, it's complex. Every crime <clears throat> has a criminal and a victim who's impacted by that crime. And yet, while the victim may be the, explicitly the one targeted by the crime, the victim's family is often a victim as well. Consider the case of murder, right? A family member is killed, the entire family suffers. And furthermore, when a criminal is punished, time in, in prison, often their family becomes victim as well because oftentimes, usually, they're not part of the crime and they lose their loved one to time in prison. Dads can't be in the homes, right? you can't earn money, causes hardship on the family. As a society, right, there's victimhood in the society as well. I, we foot the bill for prison. Six times more than we used to foot it, the bill. We feel less safe because of the number of crimes that are committed. And, and justice is complex. Like, how do, you, how do you make things right in that? I mean, you've got competing goals of the criminal justice system, right? You, you seek retribution for the crimes committed. But trying to figure out the exact punishment for a crime is hard. The justice system seeks deterrence for future, for future crimes. But figuring out how exactly to, to mete out a, a punishment such that 
criminals in the midst of, of committing a crime will think about, oh, if I do this, then that will happen, but criminals often don't even think about what will happen. So deterrence is difficult. Rehabilitation is difficult, but that's, that's the goal, so that crimes won't be committed again, and yet to try to discern when a criminal is rehabilitated, super difficult. We can't read minds, and we can't read hearts. So the Bible says the heart's more deceitful than anything else, and we ourselves even can't understand our own hearts. Uh, this book basically is advocating for us to really think through these things as Christians, a champion for justice, advocates a restorative approach, one that takes into account the criminal, the victim, and society in account. And it's, it's difficult, and in a fallen world, uh, it's never going to be right. And we live in a fallen world. Appropriate justice in the American criminal system will escape us. But it's not only justice in America that will fail, it's justice around the world that fails as well. I mean, it's justice among the nations. I think about the war in Gaza. Those in Gaza have felt wrongly oppressed by the people of Israel. Enough so that they think it justified to, on October 7th, kill 1,200 innocent civilians and take 240 people hostages. For Gaza, that's what justice is. Israel felt wronged by the attacks, and rightly so. The largest attack since the Holocaust. And enough for their military efforts to be warranted is what Israel says, displacing 85% of Gazans, many of who are living in refugee camps without proper sanitation and little food. The deaths of 22,000 is what the number is. Who knows what the number is? Many women and children in that as well. For Israel, this is justice. Where's the justice in all this? It's impossible to sort out. But here's the hope, right? The only place that we can look to true justice is the Lord. And our hope as believers in Christ is, is that coming to the end, God will be the one to right every wrong And he will measure out justice exactly, perfectly. And as believers in Christ, we're called to let go of our personal vengeance and leave it in the hand of the Lord. As Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For as written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And as we turn to scriptures this morning, we're going to see God pouring out his wrath, taking his vengeance upon the earth and pouring out his bowls of wrath, and doing it in a way that perfectly, justly, and righteously rights all wrongs. My message this morning is from Revelation chapter 16. It's called Pouring Out the Bowls. You can open in your Bibles to Revelation 16. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Just right there, come back a, a few chapters, and we're in chapter 16. We've been working our way all the way through the book of Revelation. We started in chapter 1. Uh, in the spring, and we've just been chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. We took a break for Christmas time, uh, but now we're back. And um, I'm so thankful that I preach expositionally through the scriptures because no one can accuse me. Steve, all you do is like to talk about God's wrath and, and judgment for sinners. <laughs> well, that's what our next passage talks about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And we see in Revelation 16 God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. These are sobering, sobering words. I want to read the text for you. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. 
the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing that was in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split in three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God. For the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Well, we've come finally in the exposition of, of Revelation to the bulls. And as you heard in the reading, there are seven of them, and each of these bulls brings judgment upon the earth. And if you've been here from the beginning of Revelation, you remember that uh, what I've said, the backbone of Revelation is made up of seals, trumpets, and bowls. This is like what I'm calling the background. There's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, there's seven bowls. And, and the, the seals are described in Revelation chapter 6, predominantly. And the trumpets are described in Revelation 8 and 9. And, and the bowls are described in Revelation 16. And when the seals were opened, that is of, of a letter, right? The wax seal and open. It was opened up and then judgments came upon the earth. Seven times. And when the trumpets were blown, judgments came upon the earth seven times. And this morning we see the bowls pouring out, which brings judgment upon the earth seven times. That's what Revelation 16 is, is about. And there are seven seals, and there are seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls. 
And one of the interpretive challenges of the book of Revelation is to how to understand these seals and trumpets and bowls. And there are some who take the seals and trumpets and bowls like this, as if they're all sequential, as if the Christ cross happened, and then sometime in the future, right, there's going to be these six seals, and then they're going to be the trumpets, and then they're going to be the bowls, right? The heels, seals happens first, and then, then the trumpets, and then the bowls. And there are others who understand this, that more they, they are, are telling the same story, the seals and trumpets and bowls, all describing essentially the same event, that God's coming wrath upon the earth from maybe a different standpoint, maybe from a... Um, um, an apocalyptic um, acceleration is sort of what's happening here. It's not that these seals and bowls correspond with each other. So it's not like the first seal and the first trumpet, the first bowl are the same thing. But in general, they, they talk about the things. You, you, might, you might look at it even, even a better way might even be something like this. Like there are seals and then they go, and then the trumpets maybe start midway and start taking it bigger and deeper. And then even the bowls start taking it deeper and worse and worse because... If you read them, the, the seals are bad, but the trumpets are worse, and the bowls that we've read here are worse of all. And I think push comes to shove. This is something of how better to understand the book of Revelation, something more like this, that, that there's because there's a lot in, in, the, in the seals that we see again in the trumpets, a lot in the trumpets that we see again in the bowls, because the seals bring forth, I mean, if you, if you look at Revelation 6, you later you can, but they bring forth death and famine and wars and earthquakes and darkness. The trumpets bring about the burning of the earth and death in the sea and darkness and plagues. The bulls bring forth death on the earth and on the sea and fire and cosmic battles and great earthquakes. So it almost seems like they're just ramping up is what's happening. And you can also see that just by the percentage of the earth that's being impacted is ramping up as well. The, the seals, the first several seals, it's like a fourth of the earth are affected with a sword and famine and pestilence. So it's like beginning the seals, maybe just a fourth is affected. And then by the time you get to the trumpets, a third of the earth and the sea and the sky are affected. But by the time you get to the bulls, everything comes upon the earth. So not only in the description, but also in the percentage of how it is, and um, you know, maybe it's just ramping up each of these judgments are coming. And it seems as if each of these judgments, each of these seals, trumpets, or bulls are bringing us closer and closer to the end. And this morning, we're going to look at the, the pouring out of the bulls. It's my message this morning, pouring out of the seven bulls. Verse 1 sets the stage. In verse 1, we read this. We read, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now I ask you at this point, whose voice is this? Because it's generic. It just says, a loud voice was coming from the temple. Often in the book of Revelation, there are these voices that are, are, if you will, they're coming from off the stage. They're coming from back behind the door. And it's these these voices that come out and they're commanding events. And, And many times we know who these voices are. Whether angels or people, they're identified. But there are other times when there's a voice speaking that comes from heaven or comes from some other place, and we don't know who's speaking. And then this is one of those cases. We just hear this loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels to go and pour out the bowls upon the earth. But it's interesting. If you go back a few verses, you can identify this voice. Look at chapter 15 and verse 5. John says this, After this I looked... And the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven was opened. In the sanctuary, out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, 
with golden sashes around their chests. And when the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So in other words, right, what's happening there is preparing for the wrath, preparing for these bowls, and there's smoke filling the temple, and it kind of gets everyone out of the sanctuary except God. And then we hear a loud voice from the temple comes. Who is this? This is God. This is God himself who is commanding these angels to go forth and pour out the bowls of his wrath. And don't miss this. See, this is God commanding and directing of his wrath to come upon the earth to bring judgment upon all humanity. It's not just God leaving the world to himself. It's not just some catastrophic um, nuclear holocaust where, you know, we, we bomb Russia and Russia bombs us and all of a sudden China gets in and India gets in and blows it up. It's not like, like God gave us the earth, sits back and we blow each other up. No, this is God intervening and saying, no, I'm going to come in and I'm going to come and pour out my wrath. No, it's by the agency of the angels, of course, here. But it's God himself acting, commanding his wrath to come upon those who dwell on the earth. So let's work through these bowls that God commands to be poured out upon the earth. And by the way, this is when things are so bad. This is right close to the end of time. Verse 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. I'm simply calling this bowl sores. A sores came upon really the, the enemies of God, those who had taken the mark of the beast And if you remember back from chapter 13, these are the ones who have given allegiance to the beast, have hoped in the power of the beast, the ones who have worshipped the beast. It's God's wrath coming upon really an unbelieving world receiving their just judgment. It says, you want to worship the beast? You want to take his mark? You want to identify him? You want to worship him? Sores you get. The second bowl. We see, I'm just simply calling it death in the sea. My, My outline this morning is not... Whatever, it's just descriptive. It's not alliterated or anything like that. It just is what it is. The second angel, verse 3, poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Catch the destruction taking place. Every living thing died that was in the sea. No more fish, no more whales, no more crabs or sea urchins or shrimp or pretty dolphins, no more boats even in the sea. The the water in the sea was so toxic that nothing was able to survive the sea. And it was devastating back then. They didn't have air travel, and even devastating for us today if the seas were all destroyed, no one can go into the sea again. We see the third plague. The angel, verse 4, third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. That's blood in the rivers. And we can only, see, only assume this is going to bring similar death to every creature upon the earth, right? The time is near, right? It's, the, the time is short here at this point. Because if the, the sea was turned to blood, it turned toxic to kill everybody, and now we've got the springs of water, the fresh water coming up. Um, presumably it's going to poison everyone. You can survive several weeks or months without eating, but you can only survive a few days without water. 
Maybe there's some purification water going on here. I'm not sure. But it shows the nearness of judgment when the pours, the bowls are poured out on the earth. Then, interesting, right here. Before the fourth bowl, there's like this interlude. If you look at verses 5 through 7, there's, there's this, so, so it doesn't come right straight to the, the, the fourth bowl. Look at this. I heard the angel in charge of the waters say this. I'm not sure what it means to be in charge of the waters, okay? Somehow, this water angel said this. Just are you, a holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. This is what they deserve. Here's a declaration that the death coming upon the earth is the righteous judgment of God. It is fair for God to do this. It's just for God to pour this out upon the earth. As I've been reading this book, Outrageous Justice, and the, the criminal system in America, right, often cases are cited, right, where, where fairness of judgment can be called into question. I mean, for sure, right, there's unrighteousness in our, in our legal system. Right? There's so many factors at stake. There's, there's the crime, there's the victim, there's the evidence, there's the extent of the damages, there's the law, there's a safety to community, and sometimes the law seems unfair. Enacting a, a large punishment on such a small crime because the law takes into account previous offenses. So there's been some previous bad offenses, and then something as simple as stealing a candy bar from a store gets several years in prison just because of the law. And how it's like, how can you get prison for that? How can it be so long? Since it seems soft sometimes. With plea deals, sometimes it can see it's just a slap on the wrist. Sometimes justice just can't be achieved, right? Especially when a murder's taking place. You can't bring back a loved one. Death of the murderer just doesn't bring justice. Doesn't bring peace, doesn't bring resolution. You can't bring back a loved one. And I just say this again, perfect justice will escape us during our days upon the earth. But what we see here in this interlude is this is perfect justice coming at the end. So what the angel here is pointing out, God is perfect in pouring out his, his judgments upon an unbelieving world. Just are you, O Holy One. You're righteous. What you do is right, O Holy One. By the way, he calls him who is and who was, the deviation from the normal, who, who was and is and is to come. He is and he was, right? You don't have to say he is to come because he's there. He has come. The end has come. Just are you, a holy one, who is and who was. Why? Because you brought these judgments. Why is it just for God to kill off every shriek creature and to pollute all the waters of the earth? Verse 6 says, begins with 4. This is why you're just. This is why you've brought out these righteous judgments. For they've shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Now, it's interesting. It seems here as if the only people here upon the earth are the wicked at this point. Do you remember a message last week as a call for endurance? Chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Look at the next verse, though. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right? Here's one of those ambiguous voices, just some voice from heaven saying this. Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And, and, and the idea here is it's perhaps martyrdom is being 
suggested here in verse 6, you shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. And they're called blessed if they endure until the end, who die in the Lord, who are, who are martyrs. And it seems as if this wrath is coming upon everybody upon the earth. Perhaps the righteous are, are gone from the earth. Um, maybe they have died at the hands of others. Maybe they have been reaped, as Revelation chapter 14, 14 through 16 speak about. Maybe. We'll see later, though, that it looks like the righteous are still there. So, again, enjoy the apocalyptic. Like this contra- How is it that God's wrath is being poured out justly upon all the earth? Are there believers there who have trusted in Jesus, who God promised to protect, and who are forgiven by the blood of Christ? Are they there? They're not? I have no idea. But the key point here is, verse 6, it is what they deserve. This is God taking vengeance into his own hand. They've killed the saints. They deserve torture and death themselves. And then I heard the altar saying, verse 7, Yes, Lord, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So we have two different voices. The angel over the waters is saying, Yes, you are justice, you're just and right, O God. And here then we see the altar saying this. Does that strike you as strange? The altar saying this? I just think about, remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem and the Pharisees were telling them to stop the crowds from worshiping him? And Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out in praise to God. At this point, it's the very altar of God that is crying out, vindicating God for his righteous judgment. It's as if this inanimate altar is, is so compelled at this point of judgment to say, God is just. God, God is doing it exactly right. He is righteous. He is perfect in this. So church family, are you embracing that? The, the, this judgment that comes upon the earth, these bold judgments, as awful as they are, and as terrible as they come, they are the manifestation of God's perfectly righteous judgment. We need to embrace that. And the glories of the gospel, though, is this, right? Is that we who trust in Christ will escape that judgment because Jesus bore the wrath of God upon the cross for our sins. So there's hope for us, and there's hope for anyone who repents. These people are getting what they deserve. They've refused to repent. In fact, even we see that in verses 8 and 9, that they hardly think this wrath coming upon them is fair. And this, by the way, is typical of criminals, right? When, when criminals are convicted, I mean, everybody in the jail is innocent, um, I heard some, some guys talking of their innocence. No, they, they know there's guilty, but they're in the jail. They haven't been declared guilty, right, by the prison system. Um, but it's often the case that when you're under, under, under scourge, you protest your innocence, and that's what, what happens here in verses 8 and 9. The fourth angel, this is the fourth bowl now, poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they're scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. I'm just calling this scorching heat. This is interesting, right? Pouring it out upon the sun. We've seen the, the angel pouring it out on the earth in verse 2. We've seen the angel pouring it out onto the sea. And we've seen the angel pouring out his bowl upon the rivers. And now we see the angel pouring his, his bowl out upon the sun, 93 million miles away. And it's almost as if this pouring out of the oil on the sun, this bowl on the sun, just just stirs and gives it more fuel so the sun is hotter than it's ever been before. Uh, Increasing its intensity upon the earth so the people being scorched with fire from the sun. Now this isn't just a sunburn. This is a sunburn, right? 
Um, I get burned from time to time, but I don't get burned like my wife gets burned, who's a redhead, fair skin. But this is like coming down upon everyone upon the earth, this blazing heat. And those who are facing the burns in their flesh continued the hardness of heart. You catch verse, verse 9 again. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. One would think that such suffering would turn people to turn to God for mercy. Isn't that how it works in life? Those on an airplane, when an engine gets out or when some, something falls and, and they're starting to plummet to their death, what do you think they're crying out? God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on mercy. Now, I don't know exactly what, what they're crying out because they're dead. I can't, can't talk with them oftentimes. But when people are about to crash, it's often an expression or, or when people are in a, stuck in a fire or some difficult situation or they're sick or they're crushed or they're crushed by a tree out in the forest, right, crying out to God for mercy, perhaps. Now, there are some, certainly in those circumstances, who will curse God. And that's what these people do. They, they curse God. It's how hard their hearts are. It's beyond repentance, right? All they simply need to do is repent and God would relent. God would change, Right? The wrath that's coming upon them, he'd rescue them out of that. The thief on the cross was dying for his sins. He he pled Jesus for mercy. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's repentance available, but repentance won't come because these hearts are so hard. Let this be a warning to all who presume upon the grace of God that on your deathbed you repent. It's not the case here, and it may not be the case in your day. It may not be the case in your friend's day. They knew God was the one with the power of the plagues, but they did not repent and give him glory. And we see a similar with the fifth bowl. Look at verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their plan and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. I'm calling this born number five darkness and pain, because that's what we see. We see the, the kingdom of the beast being thrown into darkness, we see people in pain, gnawing their tongues in anguish. Now, first of all, it's interesting here, right? The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun. All of a sudden, this fifth angel, now the, the beast gets drenched in whatever the contents of the bowl is, the wrath of God which comes upon the beast, the kingdom of the beast. And, and the fact that there's darkness and there's beast and there's pain shows that that darkness is, is, is probably more than just an absence of light. Right, that, that darkness is, is bringing in somehow great pain upon people. So they gnaw their tongues because of pain. Just difficult, hard. And again, despite the darkness, despite their pain, repentance was nowhere to be found. Verse 11, they did not repent of their deeds. It's an illustration of Proverbs 19.3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. So a lazy man... Right? He's foolish not to bring in his crops at the harvest time. He's going to room and he rages against the Lord. Oh, it's not fair. It's not fair. It's like your own doing. It's what you deserve. And yet they rage against the Lord as if God was unfair. But God is not unfair, verses 5 through 7. God is perfectly just. Here's the battle between the hard heart and God and his perfect justice. And these people, like I, I happened to see a, a meme this week on the internet. Maybe you guys saw it about this, this guy who was who was judged, and he, he ran towards the judge, and he leaped up over the bench. Have you ever seen this, this thing? 
It like caught the news somehow. Or so, and, and he ran up and he over and he got the judge and he was like pound on the That's what's happening here. The judge of all the earth is pronouncing his judgment, his wrath, and people are hating. And if they could, they would jump the desk and try to pound and beat God. Of course, of course they can't. But they're blaming God. It shows their hardness of heart. Rather than repenting in sorrow, their hardest can be. Let's move on to the sixth bowl, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Now, at first glance, you might think the sixth bowl is like the third bowl, which affected all, all the rivers. The third bowl turned all the rivers and springs into blood, which would render them useless. And in this case, the, the, the angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and it, and it dried up, right, which would... Right? Essentially bring famine into the land as there's no water into the land. But if you finish the verse, you see this river was dried up for a purpose. So the kings of the earth would be able to travel easily across the river on the dry riverbed so as to be able to assemble for the battle of Armageddon. That's why I'm calling this bowl preparation for war. Again, look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. In other words, right, drying up the lake bed, the river bed, allowed the, the kings of the east to have a highway in which to go and gather for war. John sees this gathering of forces in verse 13. He says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs to go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle for the great day of God the Almighty. Here's apocalyptic literature at its finest. We see here the unholy trinity. We've seen this before. In chapter 12 and 13, we see the dragon in chapter 12. And we see the beast and the false prophet in chapter 13. And they're drawing people after them. And John saw these three there and frogs were coming out of their mouths. Now, frogs coming out of the mouth of a dragon and the beast of false prophet is is a strange imagery, but we see John interpreting himself, verse 14, they are demonic spirits. And these spirits, these demonic spirits, their task is to go and assemble all the kings of the earth for the final battle. And they're going to ride on that riverbed of the great river Euphrates to come to this place, which is in Hebrew called Armageddon, which we get to in verse 16. And they assemble at that place in Hebrew, which is called Armageddon. But then there's this curious little parenthesis. If you look at verse 15, it's, it's a parenthetical comment. Strange comment. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And it's right here where, you know, even in the midst of the judgment, it looks like the righteous are gone from the earth because the punishment's coming only upon the wicked. Like, but here we have some righteous people that, that God is giving this, this blessing to them as well. We see the, the faithful ones being exhorted to stay true. And the message of keeping your garments on doesn't mean, and, and don't, take, don't go naked and go streaking at the NFL game. Don't do that. He's not saying that. It's not about taking your clothes off. It, it's got to be about somehow not walking around unclothed and vulnerable. If you look at chapter 17 and verse 16, we see there that the ten horns you saw, there the beast, will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So basically, so unrobing her, Right, T- taking your garments. On. So the deal is, I think, you keep your garments on, 
Stay clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I think it's another call for endurance is actually what we're seeing here, even in the midst of this, this great assembly for war. And then we have the kings, all the world, assemble for battle, as we said in verse 16, at the place in Hebrew that's called Armageddon. This is the final war of all wars. This is the preparation for the war of Armageddon. This is the final conflict, the war that will end all wars. But it's not an earthly war. Yes, the kings of the earth are involved, but also the, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet are also involved. This is a, this is a cosmic battle, which, by the way, our world wars are, were cosmic battles for sure. And wars today in Russia and Ukraine, certainly there are cosmic battles going on there. But here we see God against all the kings of the earth, God against the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, God against all of these demons, and it's almost over before it starts. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. This is God talking smack, is what this is. Saying he'll win the battle, even before it's begun. But basically he says, this is the end of God's wrath. This is the end. It, it, it's done. The, the wrath of God is, is all poured out, as he says. In fact, look back in chapter 15, verse 1. We see this. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, with which are the last. These are the last plagues. For with them the wrath of God is finished. With these plagues will finish with finality the wrath of God. When all the bowls are poured out, God's wrath is finished. It's done. His judgment is complete. Now, that's not to say that he's, he's done working. He's done judging because we're going to see later his final sentencing, which comes to the great white throne judgment in chapter 20, verse 11. But, but here it is, the, the final wrath. It's, it's all done. And this, by the way, is probably the final row, woe of Revelation. The first one came after the fifth trumpet, chapter 9, verse 12. You can just even see there, it speaks about this, this woe that is coming. It says, the first woe is past. Behold, two more woes are still to come. And then the second woe came after the sixth trumpet, chapter 11, verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And now here is woe, woe, woe. Here's the last woe, probably the finishing final touch of Revelation. That's why I'm calling this final wrath. Verses 17 through 21, and I, I can't help but to think of these words when, when God says, right, again, there's a loud voice from the temple that's God's voice again, saying, it is done, and I can't help but to think about the words of Jesus when he was upon the cross. He was there, and the last thing he said is, it is finished. Now, it's not that his work was, was done when he died, I mean, he came back from the dead to spend some time with his disciples, spending 40 days with them and returning to heaven where he seated on the throne for us and where he pleads for us. He's our advocate, as 1 John 2 says. He, he's the one that pleads for us before the Father. But his work of redemption was complete. And, and we look to his finished work on the cross as our hope of salvation, right? That Jesus accomplished the law for us. He lived the perfect life we were unable to do, and by faith we, come, we become righteous as he is. God, God takes our faith and accredits us to us as righteousness. For those of you reading through the Daily Audio Bible, it's just this week. Abraham believed God, 
Genesis 15, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and that's how our faith work, we be, works. We believe in Jesus. He reconciles us to him. We, we don't have to face this judgment. This is coming upon the unbelieving world, but we don't need to face his judgment, right, because God, Christ, has died for us. If we believe in him, we'll escape this judgment. Well, right here, when God says it is done, it's almost as good as done. doesn't mean God's finished pouring out his wrath. He does that in verses 18 and following, and we're going to read that more in chapters 17 and 18. But here's the, here's the cosmic battle at Armageddon. Verse 18, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there never had been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fear of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. It's interesting here. We only see one side of the battle. We only see what God did. It's as if the dragon and the beast, the false prophet, and their demon followers, and the kings of all the ends of the earth, they like put up no fight at all. I think, ah, we're going to fight you, and boom, they were done. That's how God fights his wars. It's how much powerful, more powerful God is than anything. Now, it's interesting. We're going to see the details of the fight coming in chapter 17 and 18. Right? But this is the summary. It happens a little bit like Genesis 1 and 2, right? Genesis 1 tells the whole story of creation, and then chapter 2, like, focuses upon the end. And, and we're going to see that chapter 17 and 18 kind of focus just right here upon the destruction of, of Babylon and of the beast. And it's all kind of tucked in there, verse 19, if you will, the great city was split into three parts. The city of the nation fell, and God remembered Babylon the great. Chapter 18 is all about the fall of Babylon. And over and over again, it speaks about, chapter 18, verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon. But it also speaks about how just in one hour she fell. Chapter 18 and verse 17, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Chapter 18, verse 19, talking about Babylon. For in a single hour, she's been laid to waste. So this is the, the victory of the battle. Just in one hour, God takes care of Babylon. Babylon, right, this past nation, but emblematic of all future dynasties and powerheads in the future, whatever the Lord future holds for us. But here we see the Lord is, is victorious, and we see beginning uh, in verse 18 about the, the flashes of lightning and thunder and, and the greatest earthquake that has ever been. This is the earthquake of earthquakes. Uh, how many of you have been in an earthquake before? Some of you, right? Lorinda, you're from California, right? You got it. We're here we did, right? There's a little, little here. <laughs> yeah, it was two in the morning, yeah. Little, it still counts. You're right, you're right. It's a little taste of what's to come. We've been in some earthquakes, right, in California. We were. In fact, we, there was an earthquake right after we got married. Um, we got married on June 27th, 1992. And early in the morning, June 28th, 1992, you can look it up, Google it, whatever. And big earthquake hit, big bear area. How big was it? Yeah. 7.0. And we were rocked in the San Fernando Valley. And you know where we were honeymooning? <laughs> right in the big bear Right, we're the epicenter. We're like driving right to it. So that was in the days before internet. We didn't know what was going on. And the earthquake came. And uh, we're shaking. Okay, we're like, oh, and, and we had lost power in our hotel, whatever. And so we're driving to, we're figuring out where the epicenter is. So we find out it's right where we're going. And so there's more to be told about that. That was a big earthquake. 
Um, there have been earthquakes, but this one is so big. It's the earthquake of earthquakes. It's the biggest one that there ever has been since man was on the earth. So just picture yourself, just rocked up and down. And it was so big that it split this city into three parts. It's so big, it split the city into three parts, and it also even just destroyed the earth. If you look, the islands disappearing and the mountains flat and being flattened. Yet the astonishing thing is here, verse 21, these great hailstones also coming up, 100-pound hailstones. Adam, if you need an insurance claim on some of these hailstones coming upon the roofs of the houses, you're going to get them here, right? Except there's no one going to be around to claim insurance for a new roof. 100-pound hailstones just crushing and crashing through everything. That's how God fights. God's got, <laughs> he's got the weather at his command. Boom. But this is really no laughing matter. As scores of people just killed by these hail that's coming down. If you're on an island and it, it wasted away, you're drowning in the sea like in Noah's day. The the mountains are all flattened down. I mean, such is the upheaval of the earth at this time. And the astonishing thing is that those who survived cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Can you just fathom that? Cursing God as if they deserve. This is, this is the, the clay shaking its fist back at the potter. Right? And we know Romans 9 Jeremiah 18, what right does the clay have over the potter? The potter has all the right over the clay. And here people are cursing God. They did not repent. God's all-powerful. God's going to win in the end. Look at chapter 17, verse 14, which we'll look at next week. This is the, the beasts taking war, the Babylon making war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. I just see a couple applications here. I mean, the first big application is this. What about three times in this passage, God's wrath is being poured out, and they didn't repent? Shows the hardness of heart. Let us not have hard hearts. Let us repent today. And be in a posture before the Lord that we, we realize that all we have is by his mercy, all we have is by his grace, and all we have is just, just his mercy and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's all we have. We don't deserve anything. God's given us everything that we have. It comes from his hand. Repent. I think also an application here is to just trust the perfect justice of God. Trust that in the end, God will make all things right. He'll pour out his wrath upon an unbelieving world. Chris Bronze, Red Brick Church in Stillman Valley, has told me this many times. He says, a strong eschatology makes us soft people. What do you mean by that? If you believe strongly in the end that God is going to be strong and firm and win the war of wars, we can be soft today. But if we believe that God is going to be soft in the end, a soft eschatology makes a hard people. Because we've got to meet out our vengeance. But if vengeance is mine, God says, I will repay. Let us, let's just trust that God's going to repay all the wrongs. 
when wrongs are done to us or wrongs in our society, yes, we want to cry for justice. We want to make things right. We do whatever we can. But realize ultimately that, that God is the one who's going to make things right. And if God makes things right, if there's a strong eschatology, we'll be a soft people who can come to people with love and grace, realizing that we don't need to play the judge. We don't need to be the condemner and the judger and the harsh one and the punisher. We need to be the one that brings grace. And we just trust that God's going to make things right. He's going to bring the punishment perfectly as the angel of the waters and as the angel, as the altar said, right? Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And we'll see next week as we look at chapter 17 and the week after that, chapter 18, the futile attempts that people have to fight against the Lord. It's futile. So bend the knee today. So let's pray. Father, this is a a sobering passage for sure. We don't know when or all this will take place. God, and seemingly none of this has taken place yet as we are, are not there. We've not seen fire from the sun. We've not seen the sea turned into water, blood, so that everything dies. Um, God, whatever catastrophic things this means, God, it's, it's not happened yet. And so we are, right, before that time, there's, there's time to repent now. And I pray that you would find us here at Rock Valley Bible Church submitting to you pleading before the throne as we're going to sing before the throne of God above just pleading oh God that Christ should be merciful to us and God so I pray you'd strengthen us I pray that you'd help us to catch the gravity of the message of revelation God that you will win in the end and that we can trust in that that we don't need to be the sovereign judge of all things we can love people we can tell them of the wondrous love of Christ. May we stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.